we can't know everything and we also can't do everything. That's why we rely on each other. Threat intelligence sharing is a big thing in the community. No one company is going to be an expert in everything. No one can do it alone. Welcome to the Hash Time Show, your weekly source for cyber news and info. This is episode number 22. Today's show features guest Alex Ox, CTI manager at DataShield, for a cyber threat intelligence theme discussion. Check us out online at hashtimeshow.com. And now, on to the show. Welcome back to the Hashtime Show, your weekly source for cybersecurity news and info. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Vincent, and joining me again today is Jeff Marshall and Dave Norland. Guys, thanks for joining. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like you're a little too in our face, though. Well, I, I have the new wide angle camera so I can get in your face if I want to. I'm just letting you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Without uh, further ado, I want to introduce our guest today, Alec Ox. I said it wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Alex. All that preparation. Alex. <laughs> like I, three times. I got it in my it's head. Okay. I we Alex Alex Hodge. Hodge. Sorry. <laughs> Alex Hodge. I welcome you to the show. Alex, you're uh, the manager of our cyber threat intelligence team uh, at Data Shield. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right, guys. Appreciate you joining back in to the hash time show. Uh, you know, you know me, I'm great at rough intros. So uh, this is episode number 22, your weekly source for cybersecurity news and info. And we're going to get into that in a second. But before we get to the news of the week, I want to take a minute and uh, with our first segment, well known as getting to know you. And I want to take a chance to get to know Alex a little bit better. So Alex, can you tell me how you first got into cybersecurity? Yeah, uh, it was, you know, kind of completely by accident. Uh, I went to college for a completely different uh, topic. And then, you know, I joined the Army and the Army was like, hey, we have this new cyber field. And then so, you know, they threw me into that, you know, and I went through their uh, new cyber, you know, cyber field that they were doing. Uh, and, you know, eventually I was like, you know, some of the first cyber warriors, as they were calling them. Uh, and, you know, I spent five years uh, at the NSA because they were like, oh, OK, well, we're just going to send all our super smart people to the NSA. And then their goal was, you know, to kind of take that knowledge back into the army. And then that's eventually when I left the army because I was like, oh, I can make tons of money outside of the army. So, and, yeah, so Alex is our super smart guy. <laughs> I picked up on that, too. Alex is a super <laughs> smart For the audience out there. Alex is one of the smartest guys in the sock. Right. Would you guys agree? Jeff and Dave. Absolutely. Definitely. So, well, that's, I mean, you've been with Data Shield for how long now, Alex? Uh, two, over two years. So what, like two years and like four months-ish. Yeah. And you've had your meteoric rise to uh, managing the content team. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Um, I have some other questions for you, but just for my sake, tell me a little bit about what the content team does and, you know, how, how that field's emerging. We're going to get into that more in the news, but kind of give me your, your take on it. Yeah, so our primary function is to, you know, try and keep, you know, the customers safe, right? So we write all of the alerts for our customers for, you know, new CVEs that come out, new techniques that people are using, uh, any, like, you know, new tools that, you know, attackers are using against, you know, networks. So we write all the content, you know, via Lua parsers or just, you know, like detections via logs, you know, looking at IIS logs, you know, whatever we have to do to actually find those, you know, techniques and CVEs that people are using. So we'll write that, push that to the customers. Uh, we'll also do, you know, customers' requests. You know, like customer A wants to be alerted if, you know, Sally from HR 
runs PowerShell. So we can write that for the customers and make sure that, you know, they know that that actually happens in their environment. So, and we also make the environment kind of pretty, right? So we make, we make sure that everything is parsed out into the environment. We make sure that, you know, you know, when the analysts go in there, they can query what they want to query and they're not going to have an issue for it. Perfect. So does Sally from HR run PowerShell quite a bit? Not intentionally. Uh, she right? shouldn't be, but you know, you know, every now and then, you know, the HR people like to click on links that they probably shouldn't be. Whenever I see an HR person, they're usually in DOS or some kind of command prompt, typically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's where they live at. You know? uh, anyways, um, not that we have anything against HR people. I, I don't know why this point <laughs> departments come under fire so much. That's a really good point, Dave. Unfortunately, <laughs> we always we always take a crap on HR or marketing. We talk about or C level, you know. When they get hacked, it's it's Carol in HR or Bob in marketing. We always do that. Speaking of Carol, I thought he was going to say that uh, he learned all of his knowledge from Joe Exotic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, we never know, Joe. Joe <laughs> you know, I was going to say how long we could go without addressing the background, just letting it. Well, you, you teed it up right with saying Carol in HR. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen the show. That's I'm the I'm the aloof guy. Hasn't seen I don't the know show. How you have not seen it? You, you it's so much free time, man. You, know, you just need to sit down. I know. Spend I'm, a night. I'm embarrassed. I'm like, it's like I haven't seen the. I don't even know we're in quarantine. That's how out of out of the loop I am right now. Um. <laughs> all right. Anyways, sorry about that. So, Alex, I want to ask you a question, just kind of more generic. I want to ask you: Is there emerging technology you're seeing? Um, and it could be in cybersecurity, or it could just be, you know, self-driving cars, whatever. Are you seeing an emerging technology that finds you interesting, or do you find interesting that you know you want to highlight for us? I mean, I do love self-driving cars. I I have a Tesla. You know, I know it's not self-driving yet, but you know, one day I hope to you know just you know grab it, you know walk into my garage, you know plop into my car, and then just hit work. And then you know, if I have an hour drive, that's just an hour nap that I get to take. You know, before I get there, uh, you know, I think that that's going to be amazing <laughs> one day. Uh, I don't trust other people on the road enough for that, Alex. Terrifying. Uh, yeah, you know, sometimes sometimes you just got to go for it, you know. And, and as you can tell from Dave, you can't even trust the sp- the skies now anymore either. <laughs> nope. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I think I think that's good. That's looking really good. You know, I, it, I think it's ways ways away. Uh, you know, I, you know, especially like how kind of Jeff mentioned. You know, you can't really trust other people. So you know, I think that one's going to be probably a little bit more ways away. I think the closer technology that I'm excited for, uh, you know, not cybersecurity related, would probably be like uh, virtual, you know, like, you know, looking at like Oculus Rift and everything like that for video games and for just like general learning and classroom education, right? You know, if we had that right now, people could still, you know, theoretically go to class because, you know, some people, you know, they learn better by seeing and everything. So I'm really excited. I think, you know, we'll be able to see that one in our lifetime to a point where it's, you know, indistinguishable. You know, I'm not sure about the self-driving cars. I hope so, but I really wish we had we all had headsets right now. We could do this like in the conference room. You know, we could do the podcast or <laughs> or on the beach. Yeah, you know what I mean? You know, it, the technology's getting there. I don't know if you you know. I mean, it's been quite a few years ago now, but you know, there's that organization that has the multi um, approach for the like being able to project things. So they had like that Tupac concert where in Coachella where he was on the stage with all the, all the uh, projectors making them look up there live. I mean, it, it, the technology is getting there. Yeah. It's um, getting there. So some of the Cisco conference stuff has been pretty cool. And, you know, I, I think, I think Alice, right. I think we'll see that in our lifetime. 
Yeah, I definitely think so. I think it'll be, you know, it'll be, it'll be cool. You know, we'll be able to play Skyrim again, you know, for the 20 millionth time once they, once they remaster and resell it. I played so. it. This is a little foreshadow to our later news article. I, I rebought it on the Switch and I was doing the motion controls, you know, for the sword and the shield. Not quite yeah. where they need to be, but still a lot of fun. Have you guys seen? It's like one of the best commercials ever where uh, it's Keegan from uh, Key and Peele. Uh, and he buys, he's like, you know, be playing Skyrim or whatever. And he's like, oh, am I going to play it on, you know, my Switch? Or am I going to play it on my Xbox? And he's like, nah. And then he's like, uh, he plays it on his Alexa. It's it's hilarious. <laughs> mm, I have not seen that one. Yeah. it's yeah. You guys should check it out later. I will. I will, I will definitely check that out. Skyrim is one of my... One of the games that I, I didn't play video games for a long time. And then I picked that up in 2011 or whenever it came out. And then I got full on addicted and I, I cursed my my addiction. So yeah, it's a, it has a special place in my heart. <laughs> All right. Um, last thing. So getting more back on cyber, Alex, um, you know, tell me about the importance of threat intelligence and security and not just, you know, maybe threat intelligence feeds, but talk about the human element a little bit as well. Yeah, I think where, you know, threat intelligence kind of comes in is that, you know, we can't know everything, right? Like, I mean, we and we also can't do everything. That's why we rely on each other. You know, threat intelligence sharing is a big thing in the community, right? So, you know, some people are going to be better at finding, you know, certain types of malware than, you know, than we are, right? And it's because that's what they do all day. They hunt that one specific type of malware. It's like, you know, some people are like, oh, Android's killed my, killed my parents. So, you know, I'm just going to make sure that, you know, I read a bunch of CVEs for Android. You know, but, you know, so it's it's kind of the same thing, you know, that's for threat intelligence sharing where, you know, sharing a community, you know, the, I can grab their indicators and they can get my indicators and, you know, we'll use those indicators to you know, make our customers' environments safer, you know. So if they do get hit by, you know, an adware campaign or, if they, you know, that eventually redirects them to some type of browser exploitation framework, like, you know, then, you know, we'll be able to detect that, you know. Whereas, you know, generally, you know, that that's generally kind of really hard to detect, you know, because it's probably SSL encrypted, so we won't be able to see everything that's going on. Now, if you have a good endpoint solution, hopefully that would stop it, you know, but things get past even endpoints. So, you know, sharing that intelligence between each other is, you know, it's really crucial. Yeah. Perfect. I think the larger point is that oh. no, no one company is going to be an expert in everything. So yeah. sharing kind of fills those gaps. Sorry, Jeffrey, yeah, did you say something? Did you fall up? Something happened? You said, whoa. Uh, my lighting in my office kind of flickered. Oh, you're good. So I, got, I worried about you because I couldn't see it for a second. Sorry. <laughs> Pulling too much power. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the whole point in security, right? Like, none, no one can do it alone. It, you know, building a strong community of threat intelligence is, is critical. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, you know, the stronger the community, the more detections and the safer that you can make, you know, your clients and, you know, everyone else around you. Right. You know, you that's why, you know, the FBI, they pushes out all their flash alerts and everything like that. And, you know, people integrate those into their threat intelligence. So you can even argue half of those are, are old sometimes by the time you get them. You, you know, yeah. So having a community where people can share these things, you know, in real time right away is is critical. Let me ask you guys a question just on the same note. This kind of leads into the next uh, segment with the news. But, you know, when was the first time my my suspicion, you guys have been around this industry a lot longer than I have, far longer. My suspicion is threat intelligence started as kind of an underground community sharing and working together. You know, when was it first monetized? When did providers start offering it as a service you could subscribe to? Is there a time you guys could pinpoint in the back of your heads? 
Good question. I think as soon as the data was at a large enough scale to where it was so large that you couldn't have one person feasibly mimic it, I think that's probably when you could monetize it. I mean, Jeff, may, you probably have some some input there. Yeah, you know, I would say kind of a turning point for when for for my, in my mind was, you know, I mean, I'd say back in the kind of late two thousands, like. 2008, 2009, Cisco, Anomaly, a couple others started really pushing the whole feed idea and that, hey, buy our service that we're gathering this information. And it really started with, before that, with people just putting up, hey, I'm going to go put a honeypot up, right? That's kind of where threat intelligence started was, let me put a honeypot up and then I'll tell people what I find in my honeypot. And then Anomaly really took the first go at, hey, I'm just going to go put these throughout the whole world and start gathering the data, collect it, sort it, and I'll start selling it to you. And so I think kind of that 2007 to nine range is really when I recall it kind of taking off, you know, recorded futures. Um, it may even been before that. I, I don't know what year anomaly started. Anybody got that, that stat handy, but you know, kind of in those areas is, is really when it happened. I mean, now it's a boom in business, right? So let's, with yeah. that, let's jump into segment number two, the news. I'm going to get this first headline for you guys. The rise of security intelligence recorded future crosses 100 million annual recurring revenue threshold. This is from PR Newswire. Jeff, you gave it, you sent this over to me. Let me read the quote for you guys and then let's discuss. Um, for the listeners, we're doing, since we have Alex on today, a mostly threat intelligence focused news segment. Um, so let me read the quote. Recorded future, the largest global security intelligence provider today announced that it has joined the ranks of the world's most successful SaaS companies by exceeding 100 million in annual recurring revenue, ARR. This milestone follows the announcement of the Recorded Future Security Intelligence Platform, which provides security and IT professionals with targeted intelligence so they can focus on specific pain points and business outcomes. Yeah, so if you if you look at, so Recorded Future started about the 2009, I think Anomaly came a little bit later, but Recorded Future kind of, you know, really talk about grinding it out, right? Like they, they were way ahead of the market when they first started. No one really realized they needed, they started building up, you know, last year recorded future sold to a private equity firm for 700 and something million dollars. And people said, that's absurd. That's crazy. Well, here they are now at $1.2 billion RMR. You know, you put them at a five to 10 X, you know, evaluation of the company that, PE firm has made their money big time. So, you know, it's, it's very interesting for sure. Yeah. We covered that acquisition on the podcast, actually. I remember yeah, that. Yeah. That was one of our first few episodes, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was. It's uh, it's interesting that when you, when you think of a SaaS company, in my mind, I think of, you know, Salesforce and these different marketing tools, but, you know, it really covers a lot of other services that are out there. And here's one of them. I've never even seen, what the recorded future interface looks like. I mean, does it operate like a traditional SaaS or do you get integrations in APIs? Uh, there's some, there's integrations and things, but yeah, I mean, you log into a web portal, you know, we've used, I've, we've used a lot of these through the years, you know, recorded future anomaly, threat connect, threat stream, um, you know, Cisco services, you know, a lot of people, you log into a web interface, you can query stuff, you can add stuff, um, you know, Recorded Future has a pretty decent uh, daily email they send out, tells you kind of markets and what verticals they're seeing data from and things. So 
they all put their own little spin on it somehow. And, you know, I, I think the, the ones who capitalize on the information they find the best is the ones that succeed the most. So it's all about marketing, right? Yep. And it's all about marketing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, anything else on headline number one? No, I think Jeff kind of got it on point. You know, they're, they're a really good intelligence provider. So, yeah. I think to quote, quote Dave from before is, uh, you know, we're coming for you. You know, we'll, 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 we'll hit a hundred million RMR pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. As long as this podcast is alive, you know, we're going to keep throwing the (laughs) audience and our current trajectory. There's nothing that isn't possible. (laughs) All right. Headline number two, before I read this, you guys told me I did a bad job of picking this out. So if it's, uh, Listeners, if this is a four-second conversation, I apologize in advance. Um, anyways, I pu- I picked it out. Let me let me read it, and then I'll tell you why I picked it out. Uh, making the case for process documentation in cyber threat intel. As cyber threat intelligence grows as a field, assisting everyone from SOC analysts to C-suite executives, threat intel teams can benefit from process documentation and best practices. These concepts help build much-needed common tradecraft. I like that word, tradecraft as well as language and procedures in the field of intelligence, common tradecraft is essential. So I brought this up because we've talked on the podcast a ton of times about the need for process and documentation when you're, especially in a SOC, right? And so I yeah. thought, what a better what a, what a better topic to be bringing up while Alex is here. But you guys gave me the feedback that the article didn't have a lot of, a lot of meat on the bones. So I'm eager to hear Alex's point on a couple of these things. We've, we've, the three of us have all talked internally on this, Alex and Dave and I some, but you know, I think it's, it's interesting because it's kind of a no brainer, right? Yeah. You need process and procedures for anything you do. Um, metrics tracking. Um, I think in the security industry, you know, Dave and I both love and hate this topic, but I think KPIs and metrics in the security industry get interesting you know, from a threat intelligence standpoint, you know, we got playbooks, we have best practices. I would agree there's not a, a lot of industry shared best practices. Um, there's a lot of people trying to do that. And there's a lot of thought leadership on it, but there's not a lot that has been shared from that perspective. But, you know, from a threat intelligence perspective, how, how do you put KPIs on something that makes sense? Um, I'll give you an example. You know, we have a shield vision platform that is automated threat hunting. I, I can tell you the hit ratio is a number low enough that you don't want to market it, right? But that's how it should be. So if we're grabbing indicators, we're getting 100% hits in all of our customers' environments, they're not accurate. Or, or either, either their false positive rate side or the customer has no security whatsoever. And everybody in the world is in their environment. So customers just a honeypot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think KPI metrics from a, a security and from strictly a threat intelligence perspective is an interesting one to to figure out. Like how do you know it's effective? Yeah, I mean yeah. Oh, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, so I was gonna say, I mean, you, you never, you know, you want that positive hit, you know, because it gives you that validation and like, oh yeah, my threat intelligence worked. But you also don't want that positive hit, right? Too, because then now you're like, oh man, now I have to go through this whole remediation process with the customer. You know, like hopefully it's just some guy's laptop on the Wi-Fi, you know, that got fed into the sim. You know, and you know, then you know we're you know it's easy and done, and you're like, oh, some some laptop on the guest Wi-Fi. But you know, you know, so. I think, you know, having, you know, that low number is actually, you know, you know, like good, you know, because it still kind of shows you that, you know, your threat intelligence is working. 
you know, as long as you don't have like a complete zero, if you have a complete zero, you know, over, you know, three, four months, like, okay, something's probably off and you should probably reevaluate that. But, you know, cause you know, there's going to be something happening, but you know, the problem having, is, go ahead. I don't know. I was, I was going to say, you know, you, you, you do want some, but you don't want everything. Yeah. I mean, the problem with numbers is that everybody wants them. Everybody yeah. demands them. And then as soon as they have them, they don't like them or <laughs> they don't, they don't make sense or they're hard to interpret or you don't want to show them like that. That's we find we've talked about. Yeah. We've talked about intelligence, you know, for yeah. first the market, some marketing guy, says, <laughs> I want to, I want to say the effectiveness of shield vision. Well, the effectiveness, the higher the effectiveness is, the worst off people's security environments are. So, you know, it's like these numbers, people, people want numbers and people want to quantify things. Uh, you know, I, I saw an article the other day that completely spot on with my, my theory of this is people want data to make tangible decisions. And sometimes data does not equal out to what you want the decision to be. Or there's just not enough empirical evidence to, to, to say it's good or bad. Or it just makes a decision more complicated because now you have this, you're, you're burdened with this information that you then have to consider and it may not make sense. So the whole process is more complicated. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll share this, this, this piece of information for, you know, this kind of fits to our customers, but we have a project management group, a, a, a engagement management department that, deals with our customers. They get a dedicated engagement manager, talks to them every week or month, depending on what service they have, right? And how do you judge an effectiveness of that? If you're the customer, you can you you know black and white, either it's working or it's not, right? But how do you measure that internally of effectiveness? Are they joining calls? Are they providing value? Here, here's the question. Are they providing value? That is a very subjective thing. You could have two customers one says absolutely. One says heck no. And how do you prove the value there, or or give KPIs that make people feel good? Because no matter what you say, you say, hey, I want to make a data driven decision. And in the end, after you provide all the data, they say, well, how does the customer feel? Yeah. But then the data is just out the window, and it means nothing. <laughs> it's, I'm going to quote a very wise security professional, and his name's Dave Norland. Uh, he once said, oh, uh, <laughs> he, he once said on a podcast or maybe I think it was on a podcast. He said something to the extent of, Hey, you're monitoring our environment and nothing happened. So what's the value? Like, what's the ROI? Yeah. You know, we don't, it's good. Nothing happened. Right. What am I paying you yeah. for? Well, I'm paying you in case something happens. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you another one that came up today. I won't say where it came from, but someone wants to us to provide some information on, how do they preemptively know they're going to get breached or that there's a potential oh, yeah. for a breach, <laughs> right? Like it's preemptively, what indicators tell me that there's going to be a breach? Mind powers. Now, besides buying, yeah, besides saying- <laughs> Jedi okay, mind tricks. Yeah, besides either taking some Jedi approach to it or providing actual evidence that says, okay, well, you have these vulnerabilities. Yeah, as I was going to say- this level of patching, you respond this effectively, you have someone or don't have someone, and then you can make some risk score up and say, this is our potential risk, right? But you can't say, well, you know, I stuck my finger in the wind and I, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to get breached this week. I think security scorecards kind of done an interesting job with that because, again, this is an, another company kind of like Recorded Future where they're just 
amassing huge amounts of data and that is kind of their service and they had a, a good point i remember watching one of their presentations where after they had graded things they found that organizations who were breached did fall into a certain grade level and i always thought that was fairly valuable now you can make the case well they're just looking at things that they can scrape externally it's all just external facing stuff well that's true but when you look at this you know big data over time these companies that are breached do fall into this this bracket so i, I think you can you know quote unquote, predict it to a certain degree by looking and you know, Alex briefly mentioned this by like the, the vulnerabilities they have, uh, you know, like what is the real hard risk on paper? So yep. it's possible, it, it, it's but it's not easy. Approach. Yeah, you can do that. And then you can look and, you know, like check their last phishing engagement and be like, okay, well, you knew you had 30% of your employees, you know, click on the phishing links, you know, and that's definitely, you can weigh that in too, because, you know, you know, phishing and social engineering is still like going to be the number one way that attackers get into any network for, for the longest time, you know? Yeah. I mean, we still see those numbers close to 50% of everything we look at. I think threat intelligence, you know, as we're talking about this, it can kind of show a, uh, a return on investment. One of the things that I always notice when, when we do environment reviews or look at reports in customer environments, you know, the threat intelligence that we have, it feeds into the customer environments and then we can see that. And oftentimes we'll see hits for threat intelligence all the time. Um, but they may be old, they may be on benign activity, but when you export that, you get kind of this larger view of uh, different IPs that were at one time bad or different domains that were bad, whatever the case may be. And even though they aren't now, there's nothing to say that they wouldn't be in the future again, or, or something may happen to where, you know, you'll have an instance of, bad traffic in your environment. And I think just showing the fact that they had hits on CTI for things that were at one time bad can demonstrate that, yes, there's always going to be a threat to your organization. Like there's enough activity in your environment to hit bad things. So just having that perspective on threat intelligence and seeing that, you know, that bad stuff's out there for everybody, it's valuable. And the opposite is true as well. We've had, you know, we had a case not too long ago where every indicator, every threat intelligence store said it was, it was not found in there. It was not bad, a bad act or anything like that. But we had seen the breach in a customer. We knew, in fact, that it was a nation state actor that was coming in from that IP address. So there's the opposite where we knew from our threat intelligence that it, that it was a nation state actor, but everyone else's threat intelligence said it was not bad. Yeah. So that's kind of, to Alex's point, the whole point of community sharing, right? If, yeah. if that indicator doesn't get out there, this is a known nation state actor, then people won't know. And that was a, a specific instance of sharing that, that enabled that detection. So, yeah. Yep. Well, perfect, guys. I appreciate See, that was a good headline. It spurred some really good discussions. So thank you very much. Yeah, I don't think we talked too much on documentation there. <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't really get into the, the really fun documentation aspect. <laughs> That's my trick. I, I, it's, a, it's a Jedi mind trick in the podcast notes. Just kidding. It's not. All right. Headline number three. Um, I, this is actually a, a juicy one. I'm excited to talk to you guys about this. I got a lot of questions, but let me preface it for the audience. Google warns of government-backed cyber groups targeting healthcare organizations. Shane Huntley, a member of Google's threat analysis group. So let me pause real quick. I didn't know Google. It makes sense. Google has a threat, basically threat intelligence team, right? I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. I, I always think of Google as a search engine, uh, but you know, there's a lot more going on there, obviously. So, all right. Google has a very, very large security team and they have some very good people. And they also have Chronicle, which is their SIM platform that they have a pretty large staff of smart people as well. 
Absolutely. All right. So Shane Huntley, a member of Google's threat analysis group, wrote in a blog post that his team had seen these threat groups using COVID-19 themes as lure for phishing and malware attempts, trying to to get their targets to click on malicious links and download files. Major targets of these attempted attacks are in international and national healthcare organizations and their staffers, with the threat groups in some cases sending emails with fake links to the login page of the World Health Organization, WHO, Google traced some of this activity to a cybercrime group known as PackRat, which is based out of South America. So you made a comment before the show, Jeff. South America doesn't get a lot of credit always for having these uh, bad guys there. Yeah, you don't you don't hear about it a lot, but there's been a very long running range of South American actors. I mean, even if you go back to the old days of uh, Nord and 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 FireEye, where they have their threat maps, there's always a f- huge amount of activity coming out of South America um, that relates to certain threat actors. Now, their motivations are different than, say, the Far East or the Middle East, but um, nevertheless, you know, there's threats there as well. Are they mostly financially motivated in South America? I mean, I think everyone's financially motivated, right? I mean, that's <laughs> that's how North Korea, they, like, they literally make almost all of their money through uh you know, they're hackers and everything, right? They basically sell their service, you know, of, you know, like, Hey, you know, we have all these hackers. They're actually like really, really good. And their hackers are really, really good. And then they're like, okay, go out and sell your services to the world and then bring that money back to the government. So, you know, and, and I will tell you, cybersecurity opens up the thought process for a, a lot larger scale. Even people who we think are our allies and friends. I mean, Here's the reality. Everybody's spying on everybody. Everybody's hacking everybody, right? That, that's the true reality in this world today is everybody, just like professional athletes, everybody wants that competitive edge or that that extra dollar or whatever it may be. You know, I, I, I've had an instance where um, I worked for an organization and we had something happen and, um, you know, we paid a lot of money to try to figure out where it happened from. And, you know, it came from a government in a European nation who is an ally and friend of ours. And, um, you know, so nation state actors are not just the Russia's and China's of the world and, or Iran's and North Korea's it's everyone. Well, I so much plausible deniability in cyber warfare. Like you can always just say, Oh, well, it probably wasn't us or, or Russia loves to use this, uh, this excuse. It was probably, a, an internal actor operating independently of, of the Russian government that, they always say it's someone independent of our organization. Here's the reality. Everyone's a bad guy. <laughs> well, see, I, I share your nihilist view, Jeff, but I have to think there has to be one exception out there. Like you think Canada's hacking Sweden. They're just too nice, right? That's not happening. <laughs> you, you never know, you know, I, I can neither confirm or deny that. <laughs> Alex, you mentioned North Korea. This is totally off topic, but I, I've been seeing this in the news with the health with Kim Jong-un. And uh, I'm just wondering, there's got to be a hacking group somewhere that knows it's really going on with that guy, right? I'm speculating I, here. I, I mean, probably, yeah. We, we, I get, we haven't really seen anything 100% that's confirming or denying, so. Yeah, so. Be, be careful, Alex. He tries to pull you into conspiracy traps. Yeah, but, yeah apparently. I'm just going to be talking about UFOs. <laughs> I am, uh, I'm too guilty of that. I got Sorry, Jeff. Sorry, guys. All right. Let's get back on topic. So, Alex, you spent some time. I heard I've thought, thought about this before the show, too. You spent some time in South America. Tell me, tell me a little about your experience down there. I did. I think you said you did. 
Okay, never mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> I I was mistaken. Uh, All right. We, I guess we were joking. Sorry. All right, back on topic. So Google's giving this. I told you Jack Ryan cannot tell you what Jack Ryan has done. <laughs> okay, I got it now. All right. You guys, are that, for the audience, they're trolling me. I've been trolled officially, so thank you. Um, <laughs> so so uh, Alex, then tell me about this. I mean, from a Google perspective, Leaking this out, I mean this, or not leaking this out, exposing this was an issue. Um, I mean, this has—it's not the only thing we're seeing with with COVID. I mean, this is part of that community share, part of that threat intelligence share. I mean, what are the things, kind of things, have you seen with the COVID, um, you know, pandemic internally that that's been flying across the wire that's similar to this? Oh, I mean, there's tons and tons of phishing emails and just like scams out there. Like, oh, hey, you know, click here for the latest, you know, COVID information, or and you know, if you look. There's tons and tons of websites that, you know, have COVID or, you know, coronavirus in the names that are being recently registered and everything. So, you, you know, you can look at all of those and like, yeah, some of them are going to be benign. Some of them you'll go to and maybe there's nothing at them, on them right now, right? And they're kind of getting their reputation. And then later on, you know, they'll throw something in there that's a JavaScript and, you know, then it comes with just, you know, a watering hole, right? Because people were going there previously. So, you know, everyone, everyone's paranoid about the coronavirus, which, you know, for a good reason, you know, it's it's definitely dead the virus. But so that means they're, you know, they have all this free time, you know, because they're not going to work or they're working from home or something. And so they're browsing the Internet, looking at these shady websites that they should, probably shouldn't be clicking on in the first place. And, you know, being like, oh, you know, what's this latest article about coronavirus? And yeah. so and checking their email. So phishing is a big, big thing that, you know, a lot of our analysts are dealing with right now uh, for the coronavirus and everything. So it's yeah, one, one of the latest scams I've gotten a few of them is, you know, you get a text message saying that uh, someone who's connected to you has, uh, you know, come down with the coronavirus, click here to find out. And you know, oh, I mean, yeah. there are, people are always just trying to get you to click things or get you to, you know, fall victim to it somehow or another. And, you know, it, ha- it, it happens enough that it's still valuable, right? You, just like, people pay enough of the ransoms for Bitcoin to let it keep going on. I didn't really get fished on my phone or phishing attempts until this whole coronavirus thing. And then I got like three or four in the span of just a couple of days. So people are seizing on the opportunity, like, like few things I can re- remember even. Yeah. I get a lot of, uh, you know, have you been affected by the coronavirus? Click here to get a loan. Or collect your stimulus, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. St- the stimulus one, that's, that's starting to rise up right now as well. Yeah, so everyone's getting their stimulus checks. So people, you know, hackers are like, "Oh well, I want that twelve hundred bucks." I've already spent all this stimulus money on those tiger cubs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I got, I got a few of them just running around. Bail money for Joe Exotic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just one to reference. <laughs> I, I find it to be interesting that I mean, this is a perfect storm of of phishing, right, and fraudsters. We talked about that last week. I find it, you know, not really. It, kind of a no duh. I mean, I even thought about this. I was like, you know, uh, from a marketing perspective, it would be a great thing to target hospitals in the Pacific Northwest, you know, Hey, you guys need, you guys need help, you know? And so it makes the, some of the same things that marketers and salespeople are doing that in a lot of cases is distasteful. You know, you, they're, they're creating these, um, you know, kind of capitalistic ambulance chasing campaigns, but it's, I mean, the, the threat yeah. actors are going to do the same things though. And they're going to, they're going to be going after those same kind of pain points or those, pulling on the heartstrings of the, of the people that are, you know, out there and, and not as wise as you guys are from a cyber perspective. 
and people yeah. are mo more vulnerable than they are normally. So uh, of course they're maybe going to be an altered state of mind and, and might see phishing emails and give them more credence than they should. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the times, you know, like, you know, because it is technically against the Geneva, Geneva Conventions to actually go after hospitals, right? Like, you know, you're, if you're part of the Geneva, you know, you, if you're, if you've part of that, you're not allowed to do that. Going after hospitals, hospital personnel, et cetera, it's, it's a no-go. So a lot of these people that are doing that and, you know, fit, you know, going after these hospitals, you know, most of them won't be state-backed. You know, they're going to be just, you know, like, you know, you're kind of come like criminals, right? Otherwise, you know, they'd be going against that. Well, cool. I have more. Again, it's easy to deny that as well. I don't know what yeah. you're talking about. <laughs> it's true. I got a little bit more coming on that in our breach of the week. Let's cover really quick. This is Alex for you. We like to do this kind of stupidest thing in cybersecurity, kind of a silly thing. And so this is headline number four. Um, Nintendo accounts are getting hacked to and used to buy Fortnite currency. And, and Jeff, you told me yours is good. I need to go check mine after the show. Uh, and yours is good because you had what on it? Two-factor. Two-factor. All right. We're always, I sound like a hey, two-factor. Get your two-factor authentication over here. <laughs> hey. Hey, hey Vin, Vinny, two-factor. <laughs> hey, come on now. Uh, so let me let me read the quote and then let's, let, let's have more fun with this. Over the course of the last month, Nintendo users have been increasingly reporting that their accounts have been getting hacked and accessed from remote locations around the globe, with some users losing money as a result of the unauthorized intrusion. Nintendo has recommended that users enable two-factor on their account. I have three-factor on, Chris. You know why? Quad-factor. I don't even remember what I changed the darn passwords to, and then my kids keep asking. I just don't know the password to buy anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, then you can't spend money on games. Exactly. Memory loss. <laughs> I just don't know about it. It's, if you turn it on and it's still logged in, you're good. If you log out, you're screwed. I had to put this on here because we've talked about uh, EA getting hacked. We talked about Nintendo getting hacked. We talked about Fortnite, V-Bucks scams. It, it hits all the halftime show themes. So, and it's also kind of funny because, um, you know, I don't know. It's funny to me. V the V-Bucks scams are hilarious in my mind. So I don't think, I don't think N Nintendo got breached, right? So this is, this is more likely the case of most likely people just using the same password, right? Yeah. They use the same password on some shady form. That they did, you know, like, oh, man, I really want to see this form post, but, you know, I got to log in. All right. Well, I guess I'll just, you know, use this email address and use this password, log in, and I'll look at that. You know, then they can see the form post. And then they knew that was five years ago, but they're still using that same password from five years ago. So, you know, I, I haven't heard of any news of Nintendo actually getting hacked. You know, these are just people that are using the same password that they used. Nintendo on the you know, the, yeah. the exact same creatures. thing happened. The exact same thing happened with Disney Plus when it became a service. You yep. know, any big new service where people can, you know, try to guess an email and then try to stuff passwords in there, it's it's going to happen. Interestingly enough, I was uh, working on a on a digital shadows thing for a customer yesterday, and D Dave and I were on a web meeting, and I brought up the customer, and they had a, a fresh alert for a user's password found, and it was found in a breach. And it showed that the password linked to 20 other breaches going back three years. So the user's password is still the same thing from three years ago in multiple environments. I don't know how the person's gotten their password, or maybe they just rotated enough to get it back to the same password, ironically. But, yeah. it, you know, it's it was bad. So we had to alert the customer. Yeah, we talked about this before, Alex, but for your edification, you know, I'm a... I'm getting better now, but I admittedly was a security donkey 
And uh, I use the same password for everything. And I got my EA origin account breach. They try to buy like Madden with rupees. And so then I had to go into Steam and Uplay and everything else and change it because it basically got dumped somewhere online. Then somebody just used credential stuffing and got in there. So I'm yeah, gonna, I know, that's that's why two factor is important. You know, it's not it's not foolproof, but you know it definitely you know slows things down or stops them. Absolutely. Okay. Um, on to segment number three, breach of the week, and this falls into the um, headline number uh, three. And I saw this on Facebook, so I want to bring this up to you guys. Nearly 25,000 email addresses and passwords allegedly from NIH, WHO, the Gates Foundation, and others are dumped online. Did you guys see this, like this this massive leak breach that's I saw going around on Facebook? People were talking about conspiracy theories and, you know me, conspiracy theories. You're talking about the Gates Foundation, giving people viruses and all kinds of wacky banana stuff. Um, did you guys see this? And what are your what are your comments and thoughts on this? I mean, we haven't really, you know, I had seen it. We haven't really gotten like really where the source is from yet. Right. Like, you know, no one's, no one's really claimed it and no one's been like, oh yeah, these are from, from breaches or anything like, so we don't know where the source is from. Like if it's from a breach or, you know, like what exactly, you know, if it's just, you know, a collection of people's passwords that were again, credential reuse kind of similar to our last topic. So. Yeah. It looks like there's some political, political motivation here, you know, around some of the, extreme right, um, the, the alt-right extremists and the FBI actually didn't even comment on this. So I just didn't know if there's something to pop up on you guys' radar because it's, to your point, Alex, based on what the, the article is saying, a lot of the, you know, it basically it's reused passwords. The, the quote here from the WHO is their password security is appalling. 48 people have password as their password or had to use their own first names or change me. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's a bad password. What do we always say, um, Jeff? Is it security hygiene or is it security fitness? You know, that's what you have to be security fit. So, ironically, one of the breaches that one I was looking at yesterday had bodybuilder.com on it. And I, so I, I, I thought of you and, and our, our cyber fit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Um, anything else, guys? Any more news? Any, anything noteworthy of the week we need to discuss? Not really. I've been too busy to even pay attention to news this week. Yeah, I haven't read a ton of news. Uh, the, that new SMB3 vulnerability, uh, you know, so far it's only been a local privilege escalation, but one company finally, they didn't post the POC yet, but they said they had a POC for remote code execution on that one finally. So Great. Install your patches, people. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, hopefully you don't even have SMB touching the internet because, you know, why, why would you? But, you know, again, that one is definitely... You know, it's it's already been proven for you know a local privilege escalation, but soon enough it should be remote code. You know, you're asking questions you don't want the answer to, Alex. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right, guys, we're coming up on the end of the show. Before we go, I wanted to get your guys' opinion um, on our threat intelligence theme show with Alex on. Um, I want to discuss with you guys. You know, let's say I'm I'm Joe Blow. I run a I run an organization and. I have a small security team and I'm looking to get, you know, a threat intelligence provider. You know, what are some of the things I want to look for? And, you know, specifically when we're supporting a SOC or a security team. Funny you bring this topic up because I feel like I've given this presentation several times in uh, different venues, Jeff and I. Um, So we have a a presentation that kind of goes into into some of these concepts. And I think one of the overarching 
premises is know yourself before you get threat intelligence. So a lot of people are going to rush out and they're going to try to get a feed. They're going to get some kind of external source of information when really their own knowledge of their internal environment is maybe not up to snuff. Um, so you can collect. Well, spoiler alert, Dave and I are in the process of writing a book. <laughs> Don't know when we'll actually get it done, but one of our chapters is about know thyself and contextualize understanding that you have to contextualize your environment before you can go and get somebody else's information to add context to what you're doing. Yeah. But I think after that, you know, if you're going to go pay somebody for threat intelligence, you should probably get someone who has, you know, proprietary information and not just regurgitating all the free sources out there. Yeah, it's a really common problem where people will structure services and, um, you know, really all they're doing is regurgitating other stuff they've gotten or paid for uh, from elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of providers out there, right? We talked about Recorded Future, Anomaly. There's this, as I was looking through the list, this uh, blue buoyant looking glass. Um, Digital Shadow is one of our partners. A lot of our competitors have their own threat intelligence. We have our own threat intelligence. Um, you know, there's a benefit in my mind, I would think you guys can tell me there's a benefit if you're going to go, you're thinking about getting some level of management uh, around your security. You know, if you're using the same provider that if you're using that then for your threat intelligence, you're, it's kind of baked in with, with the service as well. Um, you know, but from a pure outsource perspective, you know, is it better to go with someone that's agnostic so they're not slanting it towards their management or does that matter? I think it's okay to look for someone who aggregates it. Like aggregation is not a bad word. It's okay to bring together other people's sources. It's really a matter of, of what you do with it. I mean, if, if you're just blindly taking someone else's threat Intel feed, stamping your own name on it and sending it down the line, like that's not anything. It's not a service. That's not a product. I think the value is in some cases, taking other people's information and then either enriching it or doing some kind of uh, logic or whitelisting or, or, you know, just a basic pass on the data to make sure it's usable before you give it to somebody. That's where I think a lot of the threat intelligence services tend to fall short is they don't do that. They just give you the raw information and then it is what you make of it. And a lot of people don't know what to make of it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it's tons of information. Like, you know, like a lot of the times, you know, you're like, okay, let me download this list of, you know, bad domains and you know, the, the list of bad domains can be, you know, millions of line long, millions of lines long, right? You know, especially if it's like you know they're in complete list, you know, or if it's past twenty four hours, you know, it's really dependent. It's you know, if you can get that information, you have to know what to do because it's going to be a lot of info. IP lists too. IP lists are getting interesting because you know some of these sources I've seen half of the IP lists are Amazon, Azure, and Google Cloud. Yeah. yeah. What do you, what do you, what are you supposed to do with that? Because those IPs rotate so quickly or to other provide, you know, other people. So, you know, we may pick up an IP that was previously on that list. So these lists are becoming invalid quicker. Yeah. Yeah. IPs, you know, like, yeah, there's still some good in them, but you know, domains and files and full URLs, like, you know, that's definitely where it's, you know, where you should be looking more so and trusting. Yeah. Yep. Otherwise you're just going to be swimming in false positives. Absolutely. All right, guys. That's all I have for today. Alex, thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it, bud. No problem. I was glad to glad to join. And Dave and Jeff, like always, you guys are rock stars. Uh, this has been the Hash Time Show, and we'll catch you guys next week. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Hash Time Show. Check us out online at hashtimeshow.com. 
some people are like, oh, Android's killed my, killed my parents. So, you know, I'm just going to make sure that, you know, I read a bunch of CVEs for Android. <laughs>